All right, welcome to On The Mic, I'm Jake Colleen. On today's episode, we have Asian and European tour veteran, Scotty Barr. Scotty is a 48-year-old from Canberra, currently residing and coaching in WA. He has over 300 tour starts in Asia and on the European tours. He spent 14 straight years in Asia as a tour member. He's had five runner-up finishes, and he's the winner of the Hong Kong PGA 2017 with numerous Pro-Am wins in his career. Scott also holds a very interesting stat on the Asian tour. He is the highest money earner never to win a golf tournament. So I can't wait to talk to him about how he feels about this stat and plenty more. Well, well, thanks very much for joining me, Scott. Um, I really appreciate you being here. If you can go back into, you know, where you first, you know, met golf and, and how you got into golf and was it a quick transition into a good player or did you find it difficult to sort of get to the, the heights of golf from the start? Oh, the, heights, the heights of golf was, a, a you know, a career dream or a kid dream that took a long time to achieve there's no question but um I started golf at a young age uh or 10 maybe and and I was into all sports as most Australian kids are the football is cricket there's basketball there's volleyball there's everything um but golf was a bit of a standout in the end um because I didn't really need anyone to play with I mean I could just actually go and practice by myself I didn't have to have yeah right uh, a group of people to perform with. Uh, and it wasn't as physically enduring as, say, running or whatever. So mm. and that appealed to me. Um, so I really got into golf and I could go to, the, go to the Oval. I used to walk down the Oval, which was a couple of hundred metres away, and just practice for hours, you know, using my father's clubs. And I realised that I wasn't strong mm. enough to swing an, a, a seven iron, so I had to start with, like, a wedge. And mm-hmm. sort of how I found my way into it. I mean, I didn't get any tuition for, you know, until I was probably 15 or 16. Um, but yeah, and I realized, I remember the first day I, I'd mastered the pitching wedge and I said, no, don't, don't go to the driver yet. Cause I couldn't even pick it up really <laughs> big old wooden timber things. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they were, what brand they were. Can't remember. Um, but the laminated come off. And anyway, my father didn't really play much, but they were in the shed. And then I got good at the seven iron. And then like three months later, I said, yeah, I'm going to try this wood now. And I remember the first shot I hit, I flew the oval, flew into the next oval. I'm like, wow, this game's awesome. And we're but, talking actual wood, right? Oh, yeah. It was timber. Yeah. 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 And you know, I must have used whatever golf balls he had in his bag, like those old Dunlop 65s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, made, I just wouldn't lose it. I'd have to look for it until I found it, which you know, might have taken 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you, what, what course did you grow up in? Was it, you're in Canberra, weren't you? Yeah, I was in Canberra. Um, look, I, I played a few. My first game was actually at Taramurra in Sydney. Right. With my uh, sort of adopted cousin, like he took me out. And I remember shooting two pars in the first ever game, um, which was cool because I borrowed his clubs or his dad's clubs, uh, yeah. Uncle Stan's clubs. And then, um, uh, but I grew up in Canberra. My parents joined me up to Federal Golf Club. I think it was my 12th birthday present. Oh, I joined nice. the golf course. Uh, and look, it was a great bunch of kids and the, the group I grew up with. I mean, we had some really talented players there and basically everyone's turned pro. I mean, even uh, Australian famous coach Cole Swatton, he was in that group. So he was a member and a junior at our club. Um, Craig Carmichael, who played nationwide. Chris Campbell's one in Japan. Uh, there was myself, Andrew Wellsford, Singapore national coach. He was in there, Rob Richardson. We had some wow. really good players at this club. I mean, we won a lot of championships but it was a competitive environment to grow up in. Yeah, I think that, that really helps, doesn't it? Having those guys around you, you're pushing yourselves um, each day to get better and beat each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like good competition. And you don't, 
you probably don't realise how good you were at the time. It was just like you just turn up to the club. Sure, sure, sure. We'd win the we'd win the junior pennant series for you know best club and whatever, but you didn't realise how good the actual the group was. It was very good. Yeah, sure. And who was looking after you there then? You said you got coaching around fifteen years of age and. Uh, well, I'd be, the local pro was Mark Higgs, who's now in Singapore. Um, Terry O'Donoghue was the first pro. I never really got lessons. Um, mm-hmm. So I used to get the odd lesson from Mark. Um, and I, I ended up working with Mark a little while after that. Um, and apart from that, I mean, I read, I won some books. You know, you win Jack Nicholas How to Play Golf on Golf yeah. My Way. And Gregory's Guide to Golf was my first ever prize. You know, I won the, the school competition and that was the prize. So I used that. Gregory's yeah. Guide to Golf, actually. That's basically what I, I taught myself the finer skills of the game out of. And what did you get out of that? What's the, what things stand out even today from that book? That book, Ball Position. I remember oh. they, it was a very good... And, and in hindsight, the way that um, Ball Position is, is portrayed these days, that was very incorrect. But <laughs> uh, at the time, that was the best knowledge available. So I remember the graphs they would have for Ball Position of how you would drop it back between your stance. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, since I've, you know, as we go into the coaching side of this, you know, you learn different things and how you would actually uh, make the ball position more concise now. But yeah, um, yeah. anyway, that's sort of what I remember. Maybe how to chip, chip and run, you know, little pitches, etc. And what handicap did you get down to? And what age did you get that low handicap? Um, well, I remember I started on 32. Um, yeah. That was the first handicap I got. And then... When I left school, I was probably a one marker or so, and I did a traineeship. I, I had ambitions to join the tour, which I wasn't good enough. There's no question. So after 12 months and sort of a floating 12 months after I'd left school, I think I mm. said to my mum, like a week before school finished, I've enrolled for uni, but I don't think I'm going to get in the courses that I've enrolled for. So um, I'm just going to play golf for the year and we'll see where it goes. Right. So I did the, the 12 months and she was a bit distraught, but I played golf for 12 months and I really floated around. It wasn't, I had no structure. I didn't have anyone that I was bouncing good ideas off. Yeah, sure. So I wasn't going anywhere. And then the opportunity to, and by, I mean, by that stage I was in the plus figures, but still nowhere near good enough. And I became sure. a trainee. I got a traineeship at my local club at Federal. Cool. And you finished that traineeship? That th- is it yeah. three years? Yeah, absolutely. By the end of the three years, I was, I mean, my, my club handicap was uh, plus four, um, which, that was a sort of a new handicap system. It's not the new, new one where you'd probably be on plus 10 by now. I was going to say the plus four back then is good. Like <laughs> well, it wasn't, no, it was a slightly adjusted. So by the okay, end, of, right. they had a calculated course rating, but it wasn't this slope rating one today where right. you yeah. plus whatever, but it would still was, you know, I, I would break par basically every time I went out. Um, and so that that was good. I mean, I could play, and, and I was definitely, you know, I was a national invite, which is, you know, the highest mm-hmm. category of a traineeship. Um, I'd played pro-ams as, as a trainee and made some money. So I was doing okay. I was sort of very dominant in my final year as a trainee within my region. Um, yeah. so I, I felt like I was ready to play the tour, um, yeah. which uh, in hindsight, I mean, you never you're never as probably ready as good as what you, those guys out there at the time. I mean, pro golfers are really good. Like the guys who make a living. So I still mm. had work to do, but I got there. Yeah. Nice. And, and so you built some confidence over those trainee years. Um, and, and did that come with the competition again as well? Or did you feel like you sort of 
you, you needed that competition to feel like you, you drove your golf. Well, I mean, you start playing for money and you start uh, playing, I think when you start, as you get better as a trainee, I mean, it's not really the way to do it these days. Kids tend that want to play wouldn't go through the trainee rank, because few still do that. Um, and even at my end, it was it was a dying trade. I think Pampling, Sendon, um, mm. that was sort of my vintage. I mean, Carmichael came through it. There's still a few good players going through it. But anyway, um, the competition in the trainees is strong. It's not unbelievably strong. And there's more, a lot of guys there that just want to be a club pro. And that's sure. their vision. And that's fine. That's totally cool with that. Mm. Um, so they're not, they're not working out there grinding. I think, mm. um, again, our club environment was very competitive. Um, and we had good players, juniors and up and coming pros at the club. So everyone would get out there and really work hard. And uh, my boss at the time, Glenn Castles, really pushed me and mm. uh, made it very clear that if I didn't work harder than everyone else, I, was un- I really probably wouldn't make it. So and where did the improvement come from then? Um, from when you're sort of shooting around square to the four plus four handicap, where, where did that improvement come from? Was it just hours on the range or did you feel like you got bigger and stronger? How, how did you feel like you improved there? I'd, I'd say it's mainly short game. Yeah. And... Um, because even then, technically, I mean, credit to everyone, but technically, we we're probably just pulling things out of the air, really, to try and make yourself better. Or, you know, mm. Nick Faldo said this in his book, let's do that. Or David Ledbetter says this, let's do that. And it's yeah. a bit, you're almost running on natural ability. But if you can learn to chip and putt, um, and putting, actually, to be fair, to answer your question fully, I'd say putting. Because I used to go, I remember I'd drive to Royal Canberra after work almost nightly. And they had floodlights on their putting green. And even in the middle of winter, I'd just stay there and putt for hours. And I became very apt at putting. And I think that was the difference in my game is, is the putting. And it's not, it's not a glorious part of the game, is it, that you want to practice? Yeah. And, that, and it's, um, you know, it, it can be seen as an easy thing, but I think it's very hard to be great at putting. It's, it's easy to be good at, but very hard, very hard to be great at. So I think you're right. And if, if you look at the guys that made number one, and um, like Day and Tiger, obviously, um, these guys could putt. And I remember Tiger could miss a putt inside maybe six foot. He would actually tap in three foot putts there at some point. Like he was yeah, just- it's crazy, isn't it? You, you, but uh, one of the things to get good at putting, uh, and you're right, you're exactly right with what you say, you need a good surface. So when you get a good putting surface, and I mm-hmm. must say the greens at, at my home club, they weren't exceptional, right? So you, you would lose confidence just by the sheer bounce of the ball. <laughs> So uh, going to Royal Canberra, where the greens were exceptional, you actually gain a lot of confidence just by seeing them go in more often. Yeah, wasn't though really. I changed my stroke, I just see them go in. Um, yeah. and, and you're right, to, to, to be a great player, you need to be a good putter. And you're right, Tiger didn't miss. And Jason Day went, you know, that three-foot putting streak. Or actually, Luke Donald is one that really stands out for his putting ability. Spieth, Spieth another one, yeah. um, you know, Compared to the other guys, probably hit it off the planet a bit, but gee, get him 15 points. Yeah, yeah, and he, he, had that, he had that. I mean, Spieth, I mean, I watched a lot of major golfs just through when I was working for ESPN, and, and we, uh, yeah, Spieth was just would hold miraculous putts to keep himself in the tournament. Mm. Actually, he did miraculous things. But did you, did you decide after the traineeship, I'm going to go to Q school and try, try and get onto the tour that way? Or? So um, I, I wrapped up my time probably two months early. So I'd done all the assignments and, yeah. and, the boss, and, and, you know, I left the pro shop and I went, I basically went out for the Australian summer, uh, which was pretty disastrous, really. I mean, I didn't know what I was going into. I wasn't prepared. I was trying to pre-qualify for everything. Mm. Uh, um, 
play in the odd pro-am or what I got into. And it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a welcome, like a hard welcome. It's like, this is actually harder than I thought. The guys are better than I thought. This is mm. harder than I thought. I'm playing tougher golf courses than I thought they would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you walk onto New South Wales in a windy day, you've really got to know what you're doing. Mm. Uh, it, it was just a different, everything up the ante. So to start with was a bit of a disastrous. I, I remember I missed my first year at, uh, for a tour card, mm-hmm. but because I was a trainee, I could go and play the pro-ams is what I did. So mm-hmm. the year after I played, I actually just followed the pro-ams and I did quite well. Um, and, I, and I met some very good players in Queensland, travelled around with Rod Pampling quite a bit. Um, you know, you had uh, Andrew Bonham and these guys mm-hmm. that are probably not playing so much now, but there were some exceptional players. Uh, mm-hmm. Shane Tate, um, probably not playing much now either, but very good. And to play with them day in, day out uh, was mm-hmm. really good experience. And then I actually, I, I came good friends with Rod um, and he sort of talked me into going to see Gary Edwin. Although I never, yeah. I didn't, I didn't do that for years. But he said you should go and see him because your swing's very apt to, or you know, it's close to what he would teach anyway. Yeah, right. Um, but the competitive side was good, and I was ready for the tour season. Um, and uh, then I got whiplash. I fell off some water skis and hurt my neck, and basically the whole, the next three years was a wipeout. So I'd started very well. Uh, I got injured, and that's how I ended up in Asia teaching because I couldn't, um, I couldn't basically swing the club. Where did you start coaching? I was coaching at Monterey's Golf Academy in KL. Right. Uh, and that was with Cole Swat, and Cole had started that academy. Obviously, Cole's very famous now in Australia. He started that academy. Mm. Um, Murray Blair was there as well. He's now the head pro at Dungarland Lakes. And uh, we started that. It was a busy place, a um, lot of coaching. I still wanted to go and play, but I was coaching. Yeah. Um, so I lasted there, you know on and off for a couple of years and, and sort of went back to Australia to play. And uh, so, I mean, it's a real journey. And then sure, sure. From, from there, but I loved Asia, you know, so you would, mm. and that's why actually, I actually, I remember going to Singapore during that stint in Kuala Lumpur and said, oh, this is the place I could be. I actually really like Singapore. But in the meantime, I traveled through Asia. I was a much better player. Yep. Uh, I met a guy called Robin Bird, who's actually very, he was very successful in Australia on the tour. Uh, we became good friends. I travelled with him. He's actually now just qualified for the PGA Seniors Tour, oldest player ever at 60 years of age. Wow. Yep. Uh, so they only, they only give five of those cards out. He was a great player, Robin Bird. But he really, now that, this guy, this is when I really started to learn the art of the game was hanging out with this guy for like, we hung out for six months. Right. And all me just doing another apprenticeship. You know, he was, he was 38 or 39 and I was 23 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we travelled around the world sort of he just didn't know where to go. So I'd point him in the right directions and I'd come along and I'd play and he'd usually do okay and I might make a check. But yeah. he really taught me the fine art of the game and showed me this is what you really need to be looking for. You've got to build a swing that does this. You've got to learn how to get it up and down from these positions. You've got to read a golf course. What, he just taught me the real secrets of the game of, of how to strategize a golf course, how to get mm-hmm. prepared, um, and it was, that was probably the biggest learning curve I went through was with the Birdman. Um, it was excellent, actually. Very simple stuff. Um, or how to play certain chip shots. This is how you play this one. This is how you play that one. Uh, how you would practice. So some very fundamental things in the swing. Uh, how much do I practice? And this guy practiced really hard, by the way. So it was always, we, we were waking up in the morning, straight to the golf course. We'd be the last ones home. 
Um, yeah. So the whole, the whole everything just it went up to what I needed to know. Now I was at tool level. Like I mm. could really mm. so this guy was my, he was easy to, and he just showed it to me for free and, and it was a good apprenticeship. You, did you talk about actually owning a shot as well under pressure? Did you feel like you, you got a shot if you felt like it was a tight fairway or you're under pressure? Did you, is that how you prepared as well? Um, no, he, uh, there was, well, yes and no, but he actually mm. specifically told me what to think over the ball. Oh, I, remember, right. I remember that day and I teach it to everyone today. Um, and, and, I, and actually, I'd worked with some very good sports psychologists. I was very fortunate in Canberra growing up with the mm. AIS. Uh, we had great sports psychologists who I made good friends with. But the Birdman made it very golf-specific about... It wasn't about really how to deal with pressure. It was about what are you going to think over the shot? How do you get your mind? What are you going to think of? How are you going to get your mind quiet? Um, what are you looking for over the ball? And he taught me that, which was fantastic. I mean, it was just yeah, about yeah. looking through windows in the air and, and focusing on trajectory more than anything else. So which, a lot of, lot of imagery. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I'll never forget that day. And it's actually stands still. I, I use it. I use that technique for myself. Mm. Uh, I have done my whole career now. And you, 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 you sort of hit the ball to the windows that you're looking at, you know, in front of you. Yeah, fantastic. I know, I know for me, that really helps me when I get really specific. I actually... I actually think of myself um, from the outside. I'm looking at me hitting hitting the shot before I go yeah. in and do it. So yeah. I think I think it's a skill in itself to get get that imagery really spot on in your head. It's not sometimes easy for a lot of people, but if you can keep working on it, it's a skill you can develop. Yeah, no, I've I've had students who say, "Look, I'm hitting the ball better, but I'm really not scoring better." Mm. And then it's like, "Well, let's start. We go to the driving range and let's start focusing on doing this." So yeah. rather than you always technique. I need the last 30% of the, the balls here is to hit it over the stick that I put 15 feet in front of you at different parts, mm, mm. Some different heights and just get into the ball flight. And then, um, and it, look, it's probably a skill that you would only really be pertinent for a better player when you, mm. you when your ball striking isn't, you know, you're not struggling to hit the ball. Um, but yeah, um, yeah it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, nice. Okay, so t talk us through uh, getting to Asia then. So when did you first get your card for, for your Asian tour? Okay, so the story still goes on from there. Um, mm. Anyway, Birdman taught me this apprenticeship, but I still probably wasn't quite good enough to crack the main tour. Yeah. Well, I had an idea I was, but I dropped out of the game because I was, you know, fun. Just you, I'm running on empty financially for like years and yeah. years of time, sure, right? It's sure. week to week, um, one week's here and there. But uh, I ended up coming to Asia. Uh, I got offered another a position to start an academy um, with my friend Murray, who I went up there, Murray Blair. He was, this was the dot-com era. Um, right, yeah. so dot-com had just started, 2000. Sydney Olympics was over. Uh, and he was getting funding through a dot-com website to start an academy. And so I went up and I started that for him in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, and I had two, three academies running at one time, which was fine. It was cool. It was a lot of work. Uh, and whilst I was there, uh, after about six or seven months, the whole, you know, we're about to have the financial crisis, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, the Singapore Island Country Club actually reached out to me and said, we have a position open for a teacher if you'd like to come and apply for it, which and I did. And how, how old were you at this point? Uh, 26. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, 27. Right. 27. Um, so I went down, I got the job uh, at yeah. Singapore Island Club, which was a club I and, and to be f frank, it was a fantastic job. They paid amazing. Mm. 
decided I wanted to make a lot of money fast. I sort of said goodbye to Murray and then dot-com blew up anyway. So, yeah. Um, and then uh, I went to Singapore. I got a um, great job at the SICC. I made a lot of friends there. Uh, Coaching-wise, you know, my book was full within a couple of months. I mean, you, I could do 50 hours a week, right? It's a, it's a massive club for those who own a – there's 20,000 active members. Yeah, well, yeah. 20,000 members, including family. So there's seven or 8,000 members and then their family can use the facility. It's busy. And I had a goal in my head that I'd go back and try the tour. And I knew I was playing really well. Actually, to be fair, I knew I was probably, I kept my hand at it because I knew I was playing well enough to play on tour. But I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't seeking tournaments, but I just needed cash. I needed to fund myself if I was going to have a crack. Well, well, yeah, but, but you said you said that you weren't quite ready before. Where was the step up? Was it just oh, okay. which part? Which, which yes. part of your game? Which part of your game did you improve that you felt now I'm ready? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I did miss a very important part. So just before I left Australia, I was working in a golf store with a guy called Andrew Bruns, who was a Gary Edwin disciple. Right. Uh, and look, quiet winter's day. Uh, I'd be chipping, there'd be none in the shops, I'd be chipping balls into the basket right on the carpet and he would watch me. And he actually gave me some, probably the most useful piece of information technically to this day uh, about how my hips would move and bits and pieces. Um, So I actually practiced that over a whole winter and I would drive, again, I'd drive home from work and I'd drive past this little, the the RMC Golf Club, which is a, it's an army course, but there's no one ever on it. Mm. I park my car and I chip for hours. So what I did is I actually fixed my chipping and my swing at the same time by grooving in this little bit of hip action. Now, now today I know that I just fixed it. I didn't actually groove it in because then I overdid it and I ruined it. But right, and then you learn how to practice right. But yeah. I got my hips right, and because of the way my hips were moving, I could hit the ball better. So whilst I was working at this golf store. Um, towards the end of winter, I, start, I was still exempt in pro-ams. I mean, I'd played. Um, yeah. I won some very big pro-ams. Just uh, on my days off, I'd go up, drive up Sydney, and Muirfield at the time was the biggest pro-am in Sydney. Mm. And I won it. I mean, I think I beat Stoltzy by a shot or so. Mm-hmm. And um, little things like that. And in my mind, was like, yeah, I can do this. And then I, I flew up to Queensland, and I played really well in the pro-ams I was invited into. I actually got offered some big sponsorship when I was there by some heavy-handed businessmen. And I said, no, I'm going to Asia. I want to go back. Leave me alone. I'm not interested to play yet. I I really, I think I had this feeling I needed my own money to go and play. Right. Um, So I didn't want to feel like there was pressure from other people. Yeah, it's a good point. I think it's a good point. Yeah. So Brunzi Brunzi gave me this idea with my hips um, Mm -hmm. and it changed my whole game. Like Birdman taught me the, the ins and outs of being a great player. This just actually gave me some fundamentals to be a great player technically. Mm. Uh, and it actually really fixed my game. So I could hit it left to right or right to left on call, which is important on, you know, you just feel like you've got that confidence. Yeah, for sure. So um, interesting. Uh, and I, so, and then I went up to Asia and I worked, I worked, I worked. I was still playing pretty well. Um, and after a while at the Singapore Island club, uh, I mean, I, I'd beaten the members, whatever. They got sick of me winning the bets, right? Uh, which was, the wells were dry, so to speak. So one of the guys in the committee, and they paid me very well. They paid me a retainer, and I became quite friendly with a lot of the members there. Yeah. Um, he actually said, just go on, give it a try, go on tour. We'd be interested to see how you go. Hmm. Um, 
And they, you know, they, he said, just go on tour. We'll pay you. You can come back and coach whenever you want. It's fine. Mm. Um, and I did. So, but I went to the tour school, which was, and, but I missed my car by shot, which was a real shame. I mean, I hadn't played under severe pressure for years. Mm. And I, I, the top 40 held their card and I finished 41st, which was a shame. Um, mm. But there was an interesting thing in that I actually chipped in to make the cut. So I still say today that could have been the most important shot of my life. I mean, I didn't realise at the time, but I chipped in to make the halfway cut, which was the top 80. So I made the cut. I shot a couple of 69s, I remember, but I still missed my card by shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it didn't mean I wasn't going to get any games. It just didn't mean I was going to get that many games. Sure. So, uh, so anyway keep the story rolling. I'm practicing. I'm still at SICC. I'm still coaching. I'm killing it, making stacks of money. I've entered Japan tour school. Six months later, I'm into the final stage. Asian tour called me up and say, you're into the Macau open. Right. And I said, cool. So I got prepared and I remember reading the paper a couple of weeks before saying, no, Colin Montgomery signed up for the Macau open. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. And I knew I was playing and I said, good, I can't wait to meet him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll go and play. You know, that'll be great yeah, sure. to play in the field with him. And he was a megastar at that time. At right? that time, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, European dominant, time. right? Absolute yeah. big time star. So I get mm. to Macau. Uh, my mate Glenn Joyner knows Colin. They went to university together. Yep. A race practice game, which was cool. So we go out and we play with Colin Montgomery. Just wow. I know yeah. Glenn. He's a great guy, Glenn. Yeah, no, he's cool. Joins. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. Anyway, the tournament comes. Uh, I'm leading going into the final round, and Montgomery's shot behind me. And so, you're playing but, together or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, maybe he's two behind me, whatever it is. Um, so, uh, which is pretty cool because I'm the teaching pro at SICC and I'm leaving the <laughs> cow open. It's got some pretty big stars in it. Um, I didn't make a bogey for like the first 28 holes or something and it was really windy. So right. it was a great, um, great experience. Anyway, so I'm playing with Monty. As it all turns out, I'm a bit nervous the last round, but I'm playing well. Um, he birdied the last to, to tie me. Uh, I lipped out, unfortunately. I mean, a really horseshoe. That would have won the tournament. He birdies the last. And then he birdies the first playoff hole and I par it and he wins the tournament. Uh, so I lost the playoff with Monty, um, which was okay. I mean, I was, I was happy. I won like 30,000 US dollars, which was great. I, um, but what it did is it, I won enough money then to hold my tour card. So the, the mix, so there would have been a huge mix of emotions there. Obviously, you had a putt to win it. Um, and golf, you can't control what other people do. But, you know, for him to birdie the last hole, what is that? Maybe 50-50. And then, you know, so did, did you feel like it was sort of um, disappointing and, and, and exciting at the same time? Or how did, how did you um, react to it? No, I was pretty happy. Yeah. I think I was more overlaid that I'd actually proven myself. Yeah. Um, I didn't play badly. There was probably a putt on 16. It was about a four-footer for birdie that I missed. And if I could ever have a shot in golf again, I would have that one again because it changed my mind over the ball where I was going to hit it. I'll never right. forget. And then I missed it. Um, and in any case, I wasn't disappointed. No, I was pretty happy. Yeah. Uh, and look, to rub shoulders with Monty, who's a top 10 in the world, he's a seven-time European or America champion. Mm-hmm. He's one of the majors, really, right? Um, it was great. And, and did it, did it uh, was it when you saw him play up close and knowing how uh, much of a superstar he was, did that give you confidence as well? You could match it with him or did you, did you see that you were that far behind at that point? No, I, I, no, it gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. That, you know, I was good enough to play on tour. So, mm. I mean, I did. I actually had a pretty good run to the end of the season. 
and because I had my Asian tour card, I, I sort of, Japan was in the back of my mind. I was actually very determined, determined to play in Japan. Mm. But now the pressure wasn't on that I'd actually, I could play somewhere else. So um, maybe I didn't prepare right for Japan. It was more of a, a, a casual effort in that final stage. I, I actually still wish I'd played better and I played Japan. But um, in any yeah. case, I, play, I ended up playing in Asia for many years after that. Yeah, so that started your 14-year um, stint yeah. in Asia. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, to, to me, mate, that's, um, you know, and un- unfortunately, the, the, you didn't get that win that you, you probably yeah. thought you, you would, you're destined to get. And yeah. I think it's a testament for 14 years on tour, I think it's a testament for your, your, your resilience and obviously your, um, your ability to, to come up every time and, and your consistency on the course. So, um, yeah, congrats on the 14 years, mate. That's uh, it's an amazing effort. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's funny, I was playing with um, Rick Kulax, who's in Perth, and he's an Asian guy, and he said, look, you're always known. This was just last week mm. when COVID broke, we went out for a game. And, um, you know, I was never the best in Asia. I think my best on the money list was 11th um, one season. Um, but I was known as this guy that would pretty much make the cut every week, right? Like, I'm yeah. sort of, most weeks. So, yeah, it's interesting. My, my longest cut streak was 17th, which was... I mean, it's not like Tiger's 146 or whatever it is or 300 or whatever he's got, but it was, uh, it was pretty cool. So 17, that was my highest. I mean, I did around that number a few times over the years where you'd almost go the whole season without missing a cut, which was fun. Mm. Mm. And, and so how did that, how did, that uh, did that drain on you year to year when you feel like you were close? I mean, I think you've had, was it uh, half a top, dozen top 15s um, on the European tour and you had, you know, maybe five runner-ups on the Asian tour. Did it start to get to you? Or how did, how did it sort of feel? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, mm. you kind of, the last one was um, the Philippine Open. Yeah, you feel like you owed a few wins. I should have won Thailand Open, to be honest with you. Uh, that was early in the piece. Richard Lee beat me in a playoff there. But, I mean, I just, just couldn't. I, I mean, I, anyway, you look back and say, that one I should have won. Was it what? So what happened down the stretch? Did you just lose a few shots, or didn't hold enough putts? You know, I missed a, missed about. I didn't get one up and down on seventeen, and then eighteen, I left it right in the jaws. Got a little unlucky in the playoff. Flew the green, massive flyer. It was dead. But anyway, um, the last one, the Philippine Open, actually, I finished runner up in, which was a few years ago, um, and I was actually outside the top sixty. I know I had to finish top eight to hold my card. Mm. It was a rough kind of couple of years. I was on the board of the tour by then. Concentration's not as good as it yeah. was. But um, I know I had to finish in the top eight in the last event of the year to hold my card. And uh, as it turns out, Miguel Tabuena shot 30 to beat me around the back nine right in the last round. Or whatever, he did 29 or something like that. It was, he shot five under the back nine to beat me by shot, uh, which was disappointing, but happy at the same time happy i held my car yeah yeah sure sure um and you know i think i shot 69 in the last round or something it wasn't a bad round i just got outplayed um and look yeah there's times there where you feel like you're playing bad and you're getting good results and you feel like you're playing well and not getting any results and that's just how golf is yeah sometimes you can't control what other people do as you said but did you find there was a consistency in that though did you feel like there was a tendency um coming down the stretch or maybe the last round did you feel that or did you did we did you oh, accept yeah, it at yeah. the time or yeah yeah i mean i think yeah look i've never i don't think i've ever been a great closer um mm-hmm. but you, you build you feel like you can build yourself up and close out i mean i'm not a tiger woods closer but yeah look always disappointed not to have won a tour event 
Absolutely, yeah. Would have been nice to have won something and just go, right, that's me. I won mm. a lot of secondary tour events, I mean, and, and high pedigree secondary tour events, but not the, not the main one. Yeah, so it's a bit of a bit disappointing. Yeah, so if you could go back in time, what would you, what would you change then? In, in, was there a preparation for the day? Was it the mental approach for the day? Did, were you thinking ahead too much? Is there, can you pinpoint anything? Yeah, yeah, and I'd probably go right back to when I was like 12 or 13. And, um, and uh, I, I think growing up in the era of the shark, a, a lot of Australians got accustomed, you know, the, everyone said the shark, the shark probably, you know, he choked too often, right? <laughs> and so it just became a word that was synonymous with going down the stretch. And, and mm. I don't, I wouldn't, I think those sort of things influenced my career going forward that you just, it was acceptable to do something like that. Mm. Uh, and look, I can remember a couple of junior tournaments, big ones, where I thought I was no chance that I, that I again, I should have won them, but mm. I might have lost a playoff. And I think it goes right back to there. And maybe not having the psychol- the sports or the, the, the team around me at the time mm. to understand how to handle it and take the positives from it did affect me. So, uh, and then you grow up and it's never, the problem was never handled properly in the beginning. And then by the time you get to an elite level, it's still there. And I'd say if I was to rewrite anything, there's a couple of tournaments specifically I'd go back to. And I just needed that calming influence saying, mate, just handle it this way. It'll be far better. Right. So if you had a tour player coming up through the ranks now and you're coaching him, so coming, what would, what would be the advice to him then? Um, stay in the present for starters. Like, like just focus on what you're doing. Just, I mean, mm-hmm. breathe down the stretch. I mean, and you see Tiger, he does a lot of these breathing exercises. I mean, everyone does it. Just yeah. learn how to breathe properly, stay in the present. And it's not over until it's over. Um, and then yeah. it's, if, if you don't succeed, uh, that's fine. Uh, mm. Let's just realise, let's pick up a little bit of maybe where mentally, because I think physically we'll always be able to find fault. Mm. But mentally, let's, let's pinpoint that little piece of something mentally where, and, you, and honestly, you need to be sharp to... Mm to finish an event it's not easy but there's going to be some little mental trigger that might have gone haywire down the stretch so Mm. let's just identify it and we work on it next time and that's that's all we need to do it doesn't mean that you're a loser it just means that you just something didn't quite go your way sure what do you think of the word patience because um i feel like when i look at even when when i watch like brooks kepper finish a, a major or even tiger last year at the masters Patience seems to be one of the virtues that, that I see come through. Um, you know, if they miss putts early, they're not getting emotional about it. They're just plugging away, plugging away, doing what they can. And then if they come on top, they come out on top. Patience is huge. I mean, and that comes a little bit with experience. And I mm. think, uh, yeah, you don't, the golf tournament, as I say, golf tournaments don't really start until the back nine Sunday as a rule. Mm. And it could even be the last five holes. Mm. Um, you've just got to be in a position to win and that's within a couple of shots. So if you blow a lead early in a round and we've seen Kepka do it, you know, uh, if you mm-hmm. blow a lead early in the round, don't give it away. I mean, there's, there's time to make this up. Um, and that's the better players, the best players in the world. Again, I don't think physically they're any different And it's that six mm-hmm. inches between your ears that, um, that makes the huge difference. And, you know, growing up, I don't think I believed that as much. It was all about technique and Nick Fowler does this, and Greg Norman does that. Yeah, uh, but it is. It's that mental uh, resilience that you have that makes the difference. That leads me to the Hong Kong uh, PGA 2016. You won yeah. that one. It's, and it's, 
it's a fun event that I wouldn't say it's massively high no. in order, but it's a lot of fun. I think I mentioned it because I know, I think early in the round, you were four in front and then I think you tripled one of the early par fives and uh, your playing partner birdied it. So I think you had a four shot lead all of a sudden evaporated. So evaporated, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so to well, come back from that, do you, do you think that your, your previous um, experience, you know, on, on the tour sort of helped you then, you know, regain your composure and end up winning that one? Absolutely. Uh, no question. You, you get better the more times that you go through the situations, you learn something from it and you get better. But yeah, absolutely. Um, and as I say, you, you learn that it's not over until it's over. Uh, and mm -hmm. amazing things happen. And you've got to recall, and you know, for a younger guy or someone who wants to develop their skills or someone who feels like they're struggling, often you just got to think back and go, well, look, I remember the day I made six birdies in a row or whatever. And those mm -hmm. are the thoughts that you've got to really just keep working to fill your head with. Even though you might be thinking of the Grim Reaper, you say, no, I'm going to replace that thought and make a very conscious effort because your mind really can't decide which one to go with. But if you just keep filling it with good stuff, um, yeah. it's amazing, you know, three holes later, you've birdied the next three and you're sort of, it's all a bit of a time warp. You know, that's how it goes. It's funny on the golf course, it seems to go very quickly when you're playing well. Mm. And when you're playing poorly, it seems to go very slowly. Yeah, exactly. Um with the European tour events you had, you had yeah. some nice status in Asia, which got you into the, yeah. the European tour events, the co-sanctioned events each year. Yeah. Um, and you finished, you, you had some nice finishes, uh, yeah. but I feel like you also probably didn't make the most of those opportunities as well. How did you feel about the step up into the European tour events? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. I think I probably tried too hard right. in a lot of them. Um, I had some really good, actually, I got some status in Europe and I played Europe for a couple of seasons. I went over and yeah, look, there's a few mistakes I made. No question. I made a couple of mistakes along the way. And if you rewrite the time, I'd, I'd try and do things differently. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a pretty competitive tour. Mm. It's really competitive. And I think I, I probably tried too hard and uh, most of the time to play well. I mean, mm -hmm. And when you try too hard, you just, it's, you're on the edge too much. I think it's more about, and you find the best players, they, they're trying hard, they're intense, but they're pretty casual about it as well. It's not, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't go their way. That's it, mate. Well, that brings me to your majors now. Like, um, I mean, that's, I mean, not many players can say they've played majors. You've played two. You've played, played uh, the 2004 Open. And right. I think you might have unluckily missed the cut by one. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. Which is, oh, I know. That was, and that was, that was a troon, yeah. Yeah, played there. Um, yeah, that was good. Played behind Tiger Woods the first two days. Did you, did you really? Who did you play with as well? Who, who was your group? I played with uh, Kenichi Fukaburi, who was a Japanese super, superstar, actually. He's still, yeah. he's a major commentator there now, and a guy yeah. called Spike McRoy. Yeah, right. We were, um, we were behind Tiger, Tiger Norman, and ah. it'll come to me. Uh, who they were playing with, the third. And then in f behind us was VJ, who was then world number one, and his group, which must have been full of superstars. So... Um, Fair to say there was a crowd around you. There was quite a bit of crowd. <laughs> <laughs> was it slow enough to sort of stay on the same tees as each other? And No, you know, not quite that slow. But, okay. um, I mean, yeah, you rub shoulders. You're walking past everyone, aren't you? And, and you'd have a quick mm. chat there with people so yeah no, it was a pretty that was a cool week so you played pretty decent um you know in that event so talk me through your preparation was there a change or a comp compared to your sort of asian 
you know, tour preparation yeah. for an event? There was. Um, by this stage, I was playing full-time. So this was the year after the Montgomery thing. So it was my first full mm. attack on the tour. Uh, and look, I was still doing a, the odd lesson here and there when I was back in Singapore with the regular mm. clients. But uh, no, I, I remember I went to Australia probably for a month before the Open. Uh, I went to the Edwin Academy and the Gold Coast because I was mm-hmm. working with Gary at that stage or, and the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just practiced pretty hard. Uh, the Australian PGA were fortunate because Asia, there was no events on. So at that point of the year, in the mid-year, it's very quiet in Asia. They gave me some uh, starts in the one-nighters back then. So I did. I, 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 it was a bit different. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have trained so hard. I trained hard in the Gold Coast for a few weeks. And mm-hmm. look, my game was, was good um, when I got to the Open. I was trying to... And I, look, even then, I, I travelled with Kim Felton and we got to the Open... Um, two weeks before it started or 10 days or whatever. And we, we were like the first guys in the golf course and we'd had five practice rounds and they do that in a major. You're allowed to mm. do it so much now, but you know, I, they said, yeah, just come anywhere from Wednesday the week before you can come and practice. Like just as long as you don't use the tees we're going to use, but you're more than welcome to use the fairways and the greens and just tee off from the side or whatever. So you felt comfortable that then after uh, you know, a few rounds of golf and some preparation? Mate, I probably had eight or nine practice rounds, right? Wow. So I knew the golf course. I, I felt like I knew what to do when I got to the golf course. And the players I'd talked to, uh, Wayne Grady had talked to me about the strategy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was comfortable. We, did it zap your energy at all? Or did you, you know, play that many? No, no, not really. You're pretty pumped up, especially being your first one. Right, right. Uh, I didn't... I didn't you know, I, I think you're physically fit. Yep. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I, I practiced all day every day leading mm. up. I might play nine holes this day or eighteen holes that day, but no, I was okay. Yeah, right. So, well, that takes me to the U.S. Open in 2011 at Congressional. Right. Uh, that's the one that uh, Rory won, I think, by yeah, he eight <laughs> yeah, he over, yeah. over Jason Day. So, um, so completely different golf. Um, talk, talk us through. Talk us through that week. I shot. Yeah over and to be honest I didn't feel like I played well at all right. uh, made some poor errors it wasn't actually that hard congressional it was just long right uh, yeah 7,000 uh, meters yeah it was a long golf course Monster. so you, you had you had a lot of you know woods or rescues to par threes you had a lot of five four irons right. par fours um, but in saying that it was pretty playable I just I honestly if there was a week where I felt tired was probably that week. I might've overdone the preparation when I got there. Right. Um, you're just trying to do everything so perfectly. And look, sure. if you were to play 30 majors and you know, you look at guys like Tiger, he's probably before he turns pro, he's probably played 20 majors already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you figure out ways to handle things and do things differently. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you do things. And look, if, if my kids or my students or whatever get in these situations, I think, I would be better for the experience I've had on telling them what to do. Yeah, for and sure. I just, I just didn't have that enough good people in my ear and especially a situation like that. I'm not saying I had bad people, but I just needed a little bit more experience. Yeah, sure. When and I go and through a major like that. And which, which sort of golf do you like playing the, the most? Do you like the link sort of style or do you like that American sort of vomit sort of style? Which, no, which I'm a links player. I'm definitely a links player. Uh, well, yeah. I, I like the links more because I, I feel like you can be a bit more crafty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, yeah. You've got to shape your shots a lot more. You've got to really think about strategy. You, um, and it's interestingly enough, I mean, you look, Norman's almost won the Open at 
55 or whatever. Tom yeah. Watson probably yeah. should have won the Open at 59. That's a devastating story, that one. Yeah, that was a hard one. And then because they're not that long anymore, relatively speaking, they're still mm. decent enough. They can still hit it, you know, 280, 290, 300 yeah. yards, which is all you need. But Lynx golf, you don't need much more than that. I mean, you've got to, mm. the ability to hit it straight, control your ball, uh, foresee the bounce that you're going to get and play that way. Mm. Um, hmm. It must have been a great experience coming into those majors. Did you feel like a bit of a superstar or, you know, I'm a player, I'm a, you know, did they look after you? What's the, what's the difference between your normal regular tour event to a major? Was there a, must have been a big difference. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of crowd. Um, I don't think it's, no, I think not really. I mean, obviously there's superstars everywhere. So the superstars of the game mm. are there. There's a lot more media than the normal, of, say, a, a, I didn't really play in the PGA Tour, but a European event, there's a lot more. Mm. You know, the media presence is, is greater. In fact, it's far greater. There's probably, it's probably triple or quadruple. Um, the crowds are huge, though. That's what you notice is just the size of the crowd. I mean, the Open was forty or 50,000 people a day. Uh, mm. The US Open was similar. So, um, yeah, just the size of the crowd, the, the, just how vocal they are is, is good, too. Who'd you play with in the US Open? Who'd you draw there? Um, I played with uh, Martin Lefebvre. And um, American kid, that was a superstar that fell off the map. A tie, try tyrant. Ah, uh, yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, he uh, won a US amateur, right? Yeah, and then he won, he got his tour card when he was um, like fifteen or sixteen. Oh, Actually, yeah, right. He's a lovely kid, and then yeah. he just—I think he's just the story of everything happened way too fast. Yeah, and yeah. As much you know, as as hard as he was trying, he, he just overdid everything. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. another, you see that far too often, that poor Chinese kid um, who yeah, made yeah. the Masters when he's 14. I mean, I, such a great talent. And then just, he's got too many things going into his, in, you know, too many distractions yeah. going into his head rather than just playing golf and do it this way is better, do it that way. Now, you, you look at an example, um, I mean, how Tiger's father, Earl Woods, must has handled the whole pre-Tiger tour years and even the first half a dozen years on tour, he just Mm. sort of went past Earl who had this uncanny ability of making the right decision. I mean, you see a lot of parents make bad decisions. Mm. Uh, And There's a lot of debate in the press about some of the female golfers at the moment about the input that their parents are having and Mm. the devastating effect they're having on their careers. But Earl Woods made fantastic decisions. Um, Probably Rory's, Rory's first eight years on tour, I guess, I mean, I'd, it's probably hard for me to comment, but he's gone through four or five managers. And I think that's affected the mm. way he for such an elite athlete. Um, yeah. Jason Day, Aussie, I mean, everything had to go past Cole, right? Mm. And then Cole Swatton, and that really helped his career. So you, you get this consistent message and they're making great choices. Um, and of course, if the parents start making the wrong choices, and and usually it's about money, I, I get the feeling it's a lot yeah. of it's about we'll cash in. There's a massive paycheck at the end of this, and but sometimes it can be detrimental to your career. Yeah, yeah, you look at you look at the guys that came through, like yeah, as I said, uh, Spieth, Jason, Tiger. They had sort of one one person for their whole sort of career coming into their twenties and you know late late twenties. So. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's very important to have that one single minded sort of approach to the game. Yeah, absolutely. And just touching on that, uh, and I, I mentioned I played with Rick Kulaks the other day. 
Mm. One of the questions he asked, because he's still playing, he said, you know, wh why were you so consistent over those years? Mm. Um, is because I kept the same coach. I mean, I didn't change my coach. And look, even when I was playing badly and I was questioning the decisions, I thought, mm. well, I've built up. I, I, I can't just change coach overnight because it could send me into a tailspin. Right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And um, so, again, it's that single voice uh, mm. of just keeping things very consistent uh, is a great way to look at your... And look, that the whole coaching element is very important um, going mm. forward in your professional life. It's very fickle, isn't it? And, and you, you do see it. Uh, a lot of guys, um, they're always wanting to get better, always wanting to improve, and they feel like the grass is greener on the other side. And more often than not, it's, it's not. And you, you always have your tendencies. I mean, each person that has played a lot of golf would know you've got a tendency. And basically, most times, you'll go out of that tendency and, and you'll be working on that the whole time. You won't really be doing too much more around it. No, no you're right. Um, it's exactly... And I think you, you get, you, as you say, just keep the message consistent. Um, get good at knowing what you do. Um, and yeah, and that's basically all you need to do. You know, the big time coaches, they're actually looking for the next star too, right? They're probably actively, it's not often you hear a coach saying, no, I don't want to work with you. It does happen though. And there's, and there's times when coaches have said, no, you're not for me. I don't think it's good for you to work with me, but not mm. often. The, the big time coach needs the big time player to keep, on the big time right yeah and the big time coaches tend to be psychologists as well as um you know the technicians so uh, i think a good coach understands their player inside and out and and knows knows how to prod and knows what to 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 say at the right times yeah sure i think so um you listen to guys like pete cowan who's a, he's a very well respected coach mm. um and and uh but he says the best players he's had he's actually picked them up when he was a kid Mm. So they are getting that message over the years, over the years. We're not, we're not moving the goalposts. We're not saying you have mm. to do this. We can recall old footage if you're playing poorly and look and, and compare. But we're going to continuously keep the message. I think um, changing the whole landscape of the foundation of what you're being taught is really, really disastrous as for, for someone who's already in an elite level. Yeah, I, I think... I think Ty is the only one that I've seen that been able to do, and I think he's done it three or four times. But that's four just times. and now he works, works by himself, right? Yeah. He knows enough. I yeah. tell you, and interestingly enough, and look, full respect, Justin Rose is an amazing player. I'm not sure I'm really keen on where he's going with his golf game mm. at the moment. After being world number one, he didn't have a top ten last year, and you, some of the stuff I've seen him work on has been really weird. Um, I hope it works out for him. Um, but I don't know where he's getting his information because it seems like it's really contrary to what he's worked on. Interesting stat. I mean, he played great. He won, almost won with that Honmar equipment last year uh, in his second start. And then he didn't have a top 10 for the rest of the season. So it's a bit, for a player of that calibre, mm, yeah. question, and I know I've seen some of the mechanics that he's been working on. It's been really different. There's always something you feel like you need to work on and get better at. And, and sometimes the want for that um, leads you down the, the wrong path. Well, I think that's probably where Tiger has come apart. I mean, if he never, mm. probably the, arguably, probably the most talented player in the history of the game. Probably, no question for me that. But changing his coach so many times uh, has probably slowed his career down. Just, it's a, it's a, it's a two-year process every time I rebuild my swing. Yeah. Um, and you can see his career, he's gone fantastic, dry spell, fantastic. 
podcast. Um, but whereas you look at Jack Nicholas, who just the who is the all-time goat at the moment, probably will mm. stay that way. Um, same coach, whole yeah. career, didn't reinvent the wheel every week. Went and figured it out and went back and get the same eyes to look at things. So what did you work on with Gary most of the time? Um, the same things. Again, yeah. we're, we're narrow. We're, we're just set positions in the swing. Um, right. Uh, obviously, Gary gets a lot of weight left. We've done that now and again. I was never a fan of the, the follow through. Um, just yeah. making the radius very narrow. I don't think that's great. And mm-hmm. I was never a fan of the shoulder turn, the directions that the shoulders turn. But I did it and I just kept at it and I made it work. There's some really great stuff that Gary does teach. And there's some stuff that in reflection had, I wish it was tweaked a little bit, but I didn't know any better. So I just did it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to Gary a few times. He's a very knowledgeable guy and very, very, very willing to help out as well. He's a very nice guy. Um, but, you know, in terms of your coaching career, um, I didn't realize how much coaching you did prior to your, your tour stuff. Um, so you obviously got a lot of experience now. So what do you, what do you like to see then? I mean, we've all, I think as coaches, we've all got a, an idea of what we like to see um, in terms of, you know, your week to week golf are coming to you. What do you like to see in the golf swing? Okay. Well, the first thing, I mean, I want to see the left hip and the left shoulder slightly in front of the ball when they hit it. Mm. Uh, I want to see the lead hip further forward. I want to see a forward movement in the hips throughout the whole swing. Um, yeah. Spending my time, I mean, I with Golf Tech, who's in a, a massive, the biggest instruction chain in the world. Um, I took, I learned the exact numbers of where body positions need to be, uh, or where the best players in the world, on average, put them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think getting weight forward so that we can get the handle to get in front of the ball, so there's a descending blow with an iron, is pretty much critical stack and tilt stuff i'm actually still working through that paper i haven't gone through it just to mm. become a network instructor um but i understand it very well i've spent a, two sessions like that now with andy mm-hmm. um, and spending a week with mac who taught andy mm-hmm. um, and learning Mac's twist on things first before i'm and actually to be honest gary edwin's almost exactly the same except for the shoulders and the radius on the way through yeah, he's uh, a little bit more flat, isn't he, with his shoulder? Yeah, the shoulders don't. Yeah, the the shoulder turns a lot is a little more horizontal to the ground, which mm. I find hard to even conceptualise. But as I said, mm. I did it for a long time. But getting weight on top of the ball, getting left, it's a it's a pretty standard formula for getting someone to hit the ball well. Um, is mm. get weight to the point where it's not quite overboard, but it's on your left foot. So contact, contact's the first thing you want to look for for a, for a beginner. To be honest, even a tour player. I mean, yeah. if their contact's off, we've got to look for why is it off. And I'm not going to name names, but there's some groovy stuff going through the internet. And uh, <laughs> I, I questioned, I, I questioned a, a very superior coach on the internet on his forum the other day because I thought the pitches, he'd got them all mixed up. Um, right, but right. where the hips should be moving in the swing. It's uh, if you don't get the hips in the right spot, it's just it's game over. Yeah, I think I think looking at contact and concept is uh, probably the thing I start with the most. Um, when someone comes to you who's new to the game or struggling, to yeah. figure out what concept they're going into the ball with, um, uh, I think is uh, pretty pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So so once we get power, contact, then curve. I mean, that's oh, sorry, contact, power, curve. That's sort of the the stack and tilt way to do it. Uh, they look at, some teachers will teach power first, 
um, which mm-hmm. is cool. But then you've got to, that's great. But if, you, if you're hitting one out of 10 shots out of the middle of the club, but they're going 400 yards, you might as well just be a world long drive champion. I think you've got to look at the goals that you, you want the student wants to have. Um, and then curve, actually, to be fair, curve is very easy to fix if they can hit the middle of the club face. That's, um, do you love the swing and then sort of educating yourself on the golf swing? Do you enjoy that part of um, your learning? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not fanatical about different parts of the game. And look, Golf Machine and these books that everyone adheres to, I mean, mm. sure, I've read pieces of it. it. It blows me away a bit that you need to think of it so technically. I don't think you need to think of it technically, but I think you need, to, as an instructor, you need to know the chain of events that's going to happen. Mm. Uh, you don't need to, you know, I've seen some real golf machine theory lately mm. and I've gone, you've got to be kidding me. You, how could you even think that? And which pressure part of your hand needs to hit the ball? It's like, that's a little over the top. But there's a, there's a chain of, of sequence that needs to happen and that's probably more about where I'm into yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, coming from a tour background with so much success on tour, that gives you a huge leg up, I think, in the coaching world, um, you know, building on, on what you're saying with, you know, when you get a client and understanding what sort of things you're looking for is, is one thing. But um, definitely coming from the tour, uh, it's, it's got to help you immensely with, you know, psychology and, and obviously the playing part of your of your coaching. So do, do you get a lot of on-course stuff? Do you like to go out in the golf, golf course with your clients? Absolutely, uh, I do, and and it's usually um, sort of where I'm at now in Western Australia. I, I have a great facility that I coach at, um, and we have course access and and taking. You know, I'm probably not going to do it the first time I meet someone, but someone's coming for a few lessons, and it's like, well, let's just go and play. It'll be after mm-hmm. the lesson. I go and play nine holes, and let's let's show you about how to strategize, what goes on on the course. Um, we've actually just started a, a partner and I at the course I'm at, um, and it's called game plan training. And, uh, we basically, so it's, it's a formula that we've come up with four hours a week for all our students. So you buy into the program and four hours a week is, is supervised training. And mm-hmm. out of the, out of each hour, we do one hour, four times a week. It's, it's sort of like 20 minutes on the driving range, 20 minutes on the short game and 20 minutes on the putting so mm-hmm. that we, with the training, if you are going to come and get better, you, you don't want to be superior in hitting the ball if you can't chip or putt it because it's you're going to have just as bad a score. We're trying to we're trying to get a very rounded feel mm-hmm. how you practice and not neglecting any component of the game. Yeah, I think group training is important as well. Like to compete um, to get people together, not not just. Uh, in a lonely sort of sport in, in a way that they can come together and, um, you know, do the social aspect and, and golf. And I think that's a, an area of coaching where I, I've seen a few coaches doing that too these days, but I think that that could be growing that we should be exploring as coaches for sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a guy in Western Australia, uh, Kerry Gray. He's a, a renowned coach now and he sort of mm. came up with this concept um, and it was always in my mind to do this when I came to Australia. And then mm. I found Kerrod was doing it. He, he works just up the road. So we had a good chat about how he's doing it. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's a real, you know, it's again, it's a formula I would have loved as a kid. Mm. Hit golf balls for seven hours a day. and That's right. And then go and play and be a bad chipper and putter. And um, yeah. it's more about, you know, you've got to 
you might as well lift the whole level of the game. It's amazing, actually, even the people that we've had come down. It's like, guys, today we're going to practice 40-foot putts. I've never done that. It's like, well, today yeah. we're going to do 40-foot well, putts. Exactly, yeah. Most people come to you, don't they? And they, they want to fix their driver or their 7-iron. Very rarely do you come and say, hey, I'm looking for some putting. But it's like, well, how often do you three-putt from when you hit a green? Too often. And let's do three 50-foot putts and see where they finish. And none of them are within 15 feet. It's like, well, there's low-hanging fruit here. Just that, right? Like, we can probably shave three shots around off your score if you can learn to two-putt from 50 feet. Yeah. Do, do you notice as well, I, I notice a fair bit when I get clients, uh, new clients, they come in and you say, oh, what's going on, you know? And you're sitting down for 10, 20 minutes and they're explaining what is going on in their head, what's going on with the... And they, they think they know what's wrong. And, and yes. I find it fascinating. It's, well, you're coming to me for help. You have no idea what's wrong. And uh, they're, trying to t- they're trying to tell you, oh, I keep my head down. Oh, I don't do this. And, and you, you're there. And I need a seat uh, because they're just running through all this stuff. And, and you, you realize that you, know, you don't know what you're doing. And you're here to help. And I'm here to help you. But the other thing which is fascinating, they tell you all this stuff. And then when they do it, it's got nothing to do with what they think is wrong. It's interesting when you hear someone, uh, you ask them, how far do you hit your seven iron? And I, you know, I hit it 170. It's like, that's further than me. I'm thinking that's further than me, but let's have a look at it. You know, <laughs> I've played it for for years and then it goes a hundred yards. Um, what I try and do is, well, what I'm trying to do, and I'm still understanding, you know, you're always developing as a coach, but I'm trying to set uh, clear um, objectives with a student in a lesson and I mm. often ask them and after a series of questions at the start and I see a shot um, mm. and I will ask them is, is that what you perceive as a good shot like you know I, to me that's not a good shot but if if you're happy with it I can create that more and more often so I need to understand their expectations about what they want to see mm-hmm. um, and I'm finding that helps a lot because then I can draw the line and I go okay so in this lesson we just I need to for you to feel happy walking away, mm. I'm going to get hit half a dozen shots like that. Uh, because often they won't give you feedback. It's very hard. If someone says nothing after a shot, I have to ask them, was that good or bad? Are you happy with it? Um, because my, the expectations of what I think, especially coming from a playing background, you know, I want to see a tight draw and I'm going to try and get a guy who's played three times to do that. It's not, doesn't work. You know, he yeah, just yeah. see the ball fly. And if he's happy with that, I'm happy with that. And then next lesson, we can build it to the next level. Um, yeah, yeah. So sort of where I'm saying with that, people's expectation, everyone has their own expectations and even the coach does about mm. what they want to be. Um, but yeah, I think, I think people, they're obviously coming to the coach because they need help. What do you think you've improved the most at with your coaching over the time? Where, where do you feel like, you know, your 20-year-old Scott Barr compared to to now where how would you describe the improvement um just i think we know how the swing works better i mean setting the foundations of establishing good contact before Mm. you work at getting a swing plane on track or bits and pieces or Mm. whatever i mean i I think just establishing the criteria of what you need to improve Mm. and where to look for it yeah Uh, so creating good contact, as I say, it's mainly hips. It might be wrist angles or whatever. It's just getting weight forward. So that's not rule number one. Let's get so weight. More, more efficiency then. So you, you, can, you can see someone and go, yep, that's it there, that's it there. And you can sort of know the plan from there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and mm. yeah, you've just touched that. You've hit the nail on the head. Have a plan. 
So you have a plan of what you want to do with a student or what mm. you want to see and then execute it. So I think before when we we're all, you know, back in the day, it was like, uh, well, where are we looking? And what did, what did David Ledbetter say last mm. week? Mm. In the book? And I think the mistake you fall into, especially as a player coach, you can often implement what you've been working on in someone's swing, which is just not needed. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm conscious of that. Yeah, for Very, sure. actually, I'm not now because I, I have a plan of what I want to do. Yeah, but back sure. in the day, I think people probably got from me um, not wrong information, but information mm. that probably wasn't as useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, your experience in in the coaching game and in the playing world um, is is going to you know really bode well for your players in the future. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. You're in WA. Yep. Um, at what golf course are you at? Okay, well, I'm at Collier Park, which is a big uh, public facility, three, four Ks from central Perth. Mm. Uh, it's nice. We're 27 holes. We've got grass range. There's a big plan for a, a super development on the site, which is exciting. Uh, and I'm just sort of starting a bit of a midlife crisis, really. My wife and I moved here. We just, we, we just wanted to have a different life than what we had. Um, and this is where we're at. So uh, my wife, Cherie's from Perth. We thought it was great for the kids to come to Australia as an Australian. Mm. I think we both wanted the kids to have an Australian upbringing. It's different than Asia, not saying it's better or worse, but it's different. Mm. We felt like that's what we wanted our kids to have. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm going to have a couple of little uh, quick questions to finish, then I'll let yes. you go, mate. Yeah. Um, best course you played over your time? Golf National Paris. Golf National Paris. Oh, that's, yeah, a, that's a new one. That's a, a oh, no, sorry, sorry. It's Golf National. It's where they played the Ryder Cup last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Beautiful little track. So that's where I played the French Open. Mm. I'd say that's the best course I've ever... I haven't played Augusta. Look, I've played some good ones. Um, but uh, part, I played Pebble Beach last year, the week before the US Open. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I think as a layout, Golf National's better. St Andrews is fantastic just because it's the home of golf but Paris um, mm -hmm. national probably the best nice nice lowest score you shot that i'm talking any 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 score anywhere uh nine under 63 in japan i was in a qualifying round actually that's when oh, I qualified. that counts even more mate <laughs> um best player you saw tiger i mean i've seen jack in the flesh so but tiger yeah I guess. And so what was so good about Tiger? Just he's just the sound or the flight? It's just Tiger, mate. I mean, what do you say? I, I, I like yeah. Laura there. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just kind of, no, it's sort of Tiger. So, I mean, look, I have never played with him, but um, I guess he's the best player I've seen, right? The best shot you hit. Can you narrow it down? Uh, there's a shot I hit in Korea once and I called it. And it, came, it was a four iron on a par four. Um, and it was just lucky. I, I called the shot. I said, I'll land, on the I'll land on the front edge. It'll roll to the back of the green and roll back to the front edge to the hole because it's mm -hmm. on a big slope. So I called it. It was a four iron. I did it and it went in. So I guess it was a freak. It was an albatross. Um, nice. Yeah, nice. I mean, I've probably hit quite a few. I, I, that's one that just comes to mind. Nice. Okay, last one. Your your twenty year old uh, Scott Barr has come up to you for some advice. He wants to play yeah. tour golf. What's the one thing you're gonna tell him? Stay off the booze, <laughs> and uh, 
And um, look, the set, set, I would say, I mean, there'd be a few things. It'll be like set established goals, reachable, attainable ones. Mm. Um, keep life pretty simple and just, just be focused about what you're going to do. Like, and you, being focused means that you go to bed early, you get up, you practice, mm. you take care of yourself, you look after yourself in condition. Mm. Um, that's, all I, that's all you need to be good is that. Yeah. Mate, also, I appreciate your time. It was fun uh, going over your career, mate. And uh, good luck with your coaching at Collier Park and uh, look forward to Is there any shout-outs you want to give while we're here? Any sponsors uh, or anything? Oh, yeah, no, just look, guys, if anyone's out there that fancies an online lesson, give us a call. Uh, Sponsors-wise, I've had great sponsors over the years, but too many to name. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, not really. I think we're just everyone that I I get pretty personal with everyone, so you know that you've all done a good job, so thank you. (laughs) Nice, mate. No, I appreciate it, and uh, good luck to you. All the best. Thanks, buddy. Take care of yourself, Jake. Cheers, mate.